You're listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. Under One Roof is your opportunity to hear conversations with subject matter experts on a variety of social justice and public policy issues. Covenant House Vancouver is dedicated to serving all youth with absolute respect and unconditional love, helping youth experiencing homelessness and protecting and safeguarding all youth in need. Please note that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the board, management, or staff here at Cover House Vancouver. And now, Under One Roof. Welcome to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. My name is Jennifer Hall, and I'll be your host for today's episode. This month, Covenant House Vancouver is speaking with Dr. Dan Lin, medical lead for the Foundry Vancouver Granville, on the topic of youth mental health. Welcome to the program, Dr. Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so pleased you could be here with us today. I wonder if, to start, maybe you could provide some insight to help listeners understand the role of the Foundry Vancouver Granville and what what your role is in supporting youth with mental health concerns. Well, it's uh, great to be here with you today, Jennifer, on these uh, traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples. And Foundry Vancouver Granville actually started right here in these few blocks in the Vancouver inner city. Since then, it has developed into a provincial network. We'll refer to that as Foundry BC. That will include over 20 clinics in different communities by 2024. I do want to start by acknowledging that this land now known as British Columbia is steeped in rich Indigenous history and home to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. And as a program, Foundry is committed to a journey towards cultural humility and cultural safety for the well-being of youth and families. Foundry is an integrated youth service for ages 12 to 24, And it was developed on the simple, important premise that this age group is drastically underserved in BC. And there's a desperate need for improved access to services. This age group is more likely to experience struggles with mental illness and substance use than any other age group. One in four youth in this age group are affected, but less than 20% of these youth are able to get help. Services at Foundry are free and confidential, and we're trying to reduce barriers for young people and their families and caregivers across BC. The model is a one-stop shop where at any of our clinics, youth can attend and access support in five important areas. One, physical and sexual health concerns. Two, mental health concerns. Three, substance use difficulties. Four, social services, so that includes you know, getting help with social assistance, employment, and housing programs, and and finally youth and family peer supports. Each community and clinic has some differences in services, and at Vancouver Granville, for example, we've always had a focus on vulnerable youth and those experiencing homelessness in the downtown corridor, though we see a whole range of youth. At all our sites, we're really striving to be accepting to youth and their families from all walks of life, And we continue to engage and hear from youth and families in our advisory committees about how we can promote a friendly and safe environment, including for populations that have historically faced higher barriers or discrimination, such as youth facing homelessness, those in sex trade work, Indigenous youth, 2SLGBTQ plus youth, or those that are neurodiverse or have developmental disabilities. Our website is foundrybc.ca. 
And you can also download the Foundry app. And if you don't have a Foundry clinic in your community, you can access Foundry Virtual, which includes counseling, peer support, youth, and caregiver groups. Now, if internet access is a barrier, the provincial virtual services can be reached by calling our phone line at one eight three three foundry and the 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 o is a zero so that's one eight three 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 zero eight six three seven nine If you or a loved one or a friend is out there and struggling, just reach out you You aren't alone and you aren't the only person going through what you're going through, even though it may really feel like that. We've worked with many youth over the years that have had to face some really difficult or desperate times and with support have been able to recover and move forward in their lives. So don't isolate or delay and you don't need to be in crisis to reach out. We, we actually want to hear from young people early so that smaller problems keep from getting bigger. And again, there are really effective treatments and supports available. Great. Okay. Thank you. It's interesting to hear you know, we we said we're going to talk about mental health, but it sounds like the Foundry helps in lots of different areas as well, and mental health being a core part of that. But you're you're also providing services in a range of areas. So thanks for outlining that for us. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the origins of the Foundry Vancouver Granville, and I know. Covenant House was was part of that, and I wonder if you could just help us understand the role that Covenant House Vancouver played in helping lay the framework for the foundry as we know it today. Sure. Well, uh, it was about 10 to 15 years ago, a number of the psychiatrists at St. Paul's Hospital uh, were becoming more and more concerned about the most vulnerable members of our community. Uh, youth experiencing homelessness would often come into the hospital and, and stabilize there, but then struggled to connect with services in the community. And without follow-up and support, they would often end up revolving in and out of the hospital. Dr. Bill McEwen had already begun doing some outreach to adults in the downtown east side. But none of this work with youth would have happened without the leadership and, and vision of Dr. Steve Mathias. And he organized a number of us. And in the beginning, we just started going out and trying to find these youth we started seeing them on the street if they were homeless and visiting them in, in shelters and, and SROs. And so the, the partnership with Covenant House evolved from the beginning quite naturally. We would meet youth in, in their crisis program and, and in, the, in the drop-in space. Do you remember anyone from those early days that, that stands out for you or a story you can share that illustrates the work that you were doing at that time? I, I do. Actually, I remember one of the first youth that I met at Covenant House. Um, somehow he'd hitchhiked across the country, and at the time it wasn't entirely clear why. And the youth workers at Covenant House had be become concerned about him because he was homeless, and they were wondering about his mental health. He, he was pretty ambivalent about meeting me, um, but we kept trying to facilitate meetings in the drop-in when he would come in. And it became quite clear he was, he was paranoid and, and was quite guarded, and he certainly wasn't interested in treatment for what would eventually be, be recognized as schizophrenia. But after two or three meetings, he, he let me know that he'd played hockey as a youth. And after some further discussion, he said he, he might like to go play hockey again. So eventually we made this happen. And it was actually his birthday, so I took him for a burger after. And I always remember he asked if he could order this burger on the menu called the Manly Burger. <laughs> and when it, when it came out, it was so big, he said, Dr. Dan, I, I don't even know how to start into this. 
And we had a good laugh about that, but I always felt that that was a pivotal moment in, in his treatment. He would go on to get housed, but continued to resist treatment for a time, and this led to challenges maintaining housing. Eventually, he had to be hospitalized and started on medication for psychosis, but throughout this process, he continued to engage uh, with our program, and after getting on to regular treatment, he was stably housed for some time, and we saw this lovely young man emerge with a really kind personality and a quirky sense of humor and interest in reggae culture and spy novels. Sometimes we would meet and wander down to a nearby used bookstore while we caught up. You know. Eventually, after a few years, he was continuing to do well. He decided to return home uh, to his family out east. You know, th this and a number of similar experiences with youth really captured for me in our program in those early days you know, how important it is to be holistic in, in our approach to care and meet youth where they are at and understand what, what their goals are. And that obviously influenced what you learned about youth experiencing homelessness influenced how you provided care for them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, when we started going out to meet youth, we quickly learned that the, the homeless population is a very complex group even beyond the challenges with substance use and mental health that we were already aware of. Many had faced disruption or abuse in, in their families of origin, and many had been through foster homes and ministry involvement. Many had survived trauma and also faced intergenerational trauma. Some, like this young man I mentioned, had migrated across the country and struggled to engage with services along the way. And there was often distrust of caregivers, and we knew we had to be trauma-informed and developed an approach based on attachment principles. There's also significant under-recognition of developmental disabilities in, in the homeless population, we, we, we quickly realized. These often explain many of the functional struggles that we see in youth experiencing homelessness, but when it's not recognized, it can lead to misunderstanding about a youth's motivation and interest uh, in care, and people often ask, why aren't they like trying very hard? I once worked with a young man who'd been sleeping behind a dumpster for nearly a year and was not even on basic income assistance because he said the process had been so overwhelming and confusing to him. So we've continued to partner with Community Living BC or CLBC, who provides support and sometimes housing to individuals with developmental disabilities. And uh, and, and we quickly learned that we were going to need to be assertive and, and go out and find youth to engage them in care. And uh, with the ongoing support of Providence Healthcare, we developed an interdisciplinary outreach team, initially comprised of nurses and social workers that would eventually come to be known as the Inner City Youth Program. Now, you can't work in homelessness without being able to provide housing. So from early on, we had amazing partners like Covenant House, uh, Coast Mental Health, and the Kettle Society and Directions Youth Drop-In. We've tried to maintain access to a spectrum of housing that ranges from lower barrier options to get youth into safe places and off the street, but also options that can support further rehabilitation and recovery when they are ready. A network for these youth with our community partners was beginning to take shape at that time, and we were also becoming very aware of that old adage that sometimes it takes a village. You talk about that idea of taking a village and partnership, and I wonder if the youth were partners in this too. Were they given an opportunity to identify and express their own needs from their own perspective? 
uh, hearing from youth and, and continuing those, those efforts to, to identify their goals and needs was, was central to our approach and necessary in, in engaging with, with youth. Now, sometimes that meant supporting them to basic needs like income and housing and food. Other times they were focused on how to complete schooling or pursue work. Other times just engaging them around some kind of safe and fun activity was instrumental in their recovery and also in building trust and rapport. Our occupational therapists and rehab therapists have always been a core part of what makes our approach unique. Even now at Foundry Vancouver, they manage a calendar of weekly and monthly activities for youth ranging from sport to music to different activity outings, cooking groups, and and self-care groups. They also work on developing life skills with youth so that they can become more self-reliant. In addition, we've developed a supported employment program called Foundry Works, and that's available through Foundry's Provincial Virtual Service and in 13 of the Foundry Center communities. It assists youth to find work or pursue school or volunteering. We, we knew we really had to keep listening to youth and be open to their feedback and ideas, and so we've maintained youth and family advisory committees that inform all of our program developments. And we developed a peer support program so that when youth with lived experience are ready, they can be involved in supporting other youth on their journey. At our clinic, the very first open door that youth see when they arrive is to our peer support office. And our peer support workers provide so much support and guidance on a range of matters like getting to your first recovery meeting, applying for income assistance, figuring out rent, or advice on starting a new job. Finally, Accessing primary medical care has continued to be a huge challenge for most British Columbians, and this is particularly the case for youth. In 2015, with the support of the Ministry of Health, generous donors, and the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, we were able to open what was briefly known as the Granville Youth Health Center. And there we were able to bring in primary care physicians and nurse practitioners under the same roof as all these other services. Eventually, with further support from the Graham Beck Foundation and Michael Smith Health Research BC, Foundry BC was created. And since then, we've been able to continue developing this model with youth and families in different communities across the province. That's excellent. It's great to hear about how holistic the care is. And, you know, you mentioned the activities and life skills and and the example that you cited earlier about how going and playing hockey and having burger with one of your clients was a a breakthrough moment in care. So it's, it's great to hear that whole holistic approach. I wonder if you can tell us about what some of the, the most common mental health concerns are faced by youth in general. Uh, well, Jennifer, this is the age group when most mental health challenges will begin. So really, we see the whole range of mental health concerns in our work with you. Some are struggling with family difficulties or navigating that transition to adulthood and independence. And sometimes there are issues around self-worth or identity or acceptance. Sometimes youth have survived trauma but aren't sure how to cope or recover safely. Sometimes youth are are trying to improve how they cope with worry or anxiety or or manage intense emotions most effectively. We see a lot of substance use struggles and a lot of uncertainty around how to manage substance use or access evidence-based treatments when our system has such a woeful shortage. 
This can also be a stage of life where there can be development of mood disorders like depression or bipolar disorder, or even struggles with psychosis. And, and, and this can be a confusing and, and distressing process. But again, there are treatments that can be highly effective. Depending on the nature of concerns, there are a range of options that may be helpful. And these vary at the different foundry sites. Maybe it's drop-in counseling or one of the evidence-based psychotherapy groups like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness cognitive therapy, or dialectical behavior therapy. Families can also receive support. And we have an emotion-focused family therapy program that many parents and caregivers have, have told us it, it helped them gain confidence, connecting, and caring for their youth. For many youth, just being in a place where they are not only accepted but celebrated unconditionally has been really meaningful, be it, for example, with regards to gender identity or, or neurodiversity. Our primary care providers and psychiatrists and psychologists can participate in further assessment and also provide guidance around medication treatments. Medication can be highly effective, safe, and well-tolerated, and often play an important role in recovery from certain mental health difficulties. The importance of mental health attention in youth can't be overstated. There, there's such a huge opportunity to minimize functional impairment and the distress and, and pain and negative consequences that can occur when treatment isn't accessible. And we've seen countless youth overcome adversity and mental health struggles to recover, and sometimes it just takes one person with understanding or finding the right treatment at the right time. I've, I've been seeing a patient recently who, who dropped out of university last year when she became depressed and didn't tell anyone, and, and she felt so alone and, and guilty and, and, and awful and, and became very suicidal and was hospitalized. Mm. She was able to get started on treatment with medication and, and counseling for anxiety and depression. And she allowed family to be involved at a certain point. And together we were able to work through some longstanding conflicts around religious differences and expectations. She also engaged in our dialectical behavior therapy program and there learned new skills for managing relationships and coping with anxiety. She reconnected with friends and she participated in the Foundry Works program I mentioned and found regular work. And she's continued to stabilize and we've literally watched her grow so much as a young person and now she's looking forward to returning to, to school in the fall. It's amazing. And I, I'm sure in your long career of working with many young people that the example you've just shared is, is one example of many where you've seen growth for a young person if they are able to receive the supports they need and, and have that, that network of care around them that it really, it's life-changing. Yeah, it's been, uh, there's, there's been a lot of, uh, I mean, amazing cases when, you know, when, when we can get that support to youth, it, it can just make a huge difference. It can be life-changing, right? So. so since the Foundry was established, 15 years ago, I think in 2007, have there been any substantial changes either in youth mental health concerns or in the supports that are provided to address those concerns? Well, I mean, the main thing that comes to mind is the, the toxic drug supply and, and, and the opioid crisis, which has been incredibly challenging. Uh, the level of risk of overdose is unbelievable. In, in, in 2021, there were 29 youth under 19 who died as a result, which makes it one of the main leading causes of death in youth, if not the main cause in the, the 12 to 24 range. So it's been just 
just really tragic. And, and at Vancouver Granville, you know, we've, we've grieved too many youth in, in recent years. Um, and these were great young people. Many were learning and making progress in recovery when they overdosed. So it's been really hard for loved ones and, and to be on the front lines with, with this, this kind of loss. No, we, we've responded like other agencies, trying to minimize the barriers to accessing opioid agonist therapies like methadone and suboxone when, when it's appropriate. But we've had to address inconsistency and, and hesitancy, uh, understandably, in, in providing these treatments to youth. But, you know, they can be very stabilizing and, and, and life-saving treatments. The traditional system with these medications of needing to go to a pharmacy each day and having your prescription canceled if you don't make it to a follow-up appointment can be really demoralizing for youth trying to get stable. So we'll see youth in clinic, but also provide outreach uh, to help them stay on these medications. We even arrange for pharmacies to deliver doses to youth at home so they don't miss them and have to start the process all over again. But we also have a concurrent approach where we try to understand and address underlying mental health issues like trauma or anxiety and mood disorders and, and other mental health conditions that can inform substance use. There's a natural degree of risk-taking that's an important part of early adulthood, but the level of risk with opioid use has made it very ethically complicated at times to balance that independence and autonomy to take some risk, but also providing developmentally appropriate protection to youth uh, from, from fatal outcomes. The other big part of the challenge has been access to residential treatments and detox services. We just, we just don't have enough services and the waits are so long. And we certainly don't have enough youth-focused recovery programs. So often we're missing that window when youth show some interest in, in addressing the, uh, their, these substance use problems. Yeah, it's, it's such a huge challenge and it's scary. You know, you're talking about risk and it's natural at that age, but when the the potential of that risk is fatality. It's a totally different situation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, another recent challenge and something we're all still dealing with is COVID-19, of course. Can you tell us what has changed for youth as a result of COVID-19? And related to that, what adaptations service providers have had to make to continue serving the youth population? Yeah, COVID-19 had a, a big impact on us at Foundry, um, typically at the at, at the uh, Vancouver site, there are multiple groups each day, and these all had to be shut down at least for a time during COVID. We, we've got them up and going again now, fortunately. But for many of the youth, these were important parts of their week and where they received support. So it was quite difficult for many, and there was a lot of isolation and, and withdrawal. Um, the upside, I guess, is that many of us were pushed during COVID to start utilizing virtual services and that technology that's there. And for a lot of youth, this has increased their access to care. Many are working or in school, and it's made it easier uh, for them to make appointments. Some of our groups were all also able to be offered virtually, and, and, and you know we've continued to try to figure out how that fits in now that we're running live groups as well. And then Foundry BC also pivoted quite quickly to develop the, the Foundry BC app I mentioned earlier. Um, and it was co-created with input from youth, for youth. So, yeah, if you're listening, go ahead and, and you can download that on Apple platforms or Google Play. 
So youth who might live in a community where they don't have a foundry that's accessible can still access support through this virtual app. So maybe that's a exactly a positive yeah. impact of COVID-19. Yeah. 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 For sure. One of few, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can shift the focus of the conversation now to speaking more broadly about the mental health care system, I'd like to ask you to, to share what you think about the, you know, how the intersection of mental health, substance use and homelessness creates unique needs for the population we serve here at Covenant House? Many of the most challenging cases we've uh, faced have been youth who are right in the middle of that intersection. You talk about between different services and a big part of our work has been trying to build partnerships and, and break down silos in services. I, I have a patient that was referred to us in hospital a year and a half ago and He'd been homeless, he was using methamphetamine, and had such severe psychosis and mental disorganization that when I first met him, it was literally impossible to, to have a conversation. And he was also known to have a developmental disability and, and had previously been supported by CBL, CLBC, but he'd also been in ministry care. And after he aged out, he became homeless and stopped connecting with CLBC and in any of his supports who was out there on his own. And individuals with developmental disability like this can be highly impulsive and easily influenced and can quickly become marginalized and, and victimized when homeless. I've had several cases like this, most of whom have already had overdoses with opioids. But often they aren't necessarily interested in addressing substance use. And as such, their housing options are very limited in the current system and essentially include shelters and SROs where they are surrounded by substance use and invariably become further entangled with, with addiction. Mental health housing has very few options for in individuals that are actively using substance. And mental health teams often struggle to support individuals with developmental disabilities but on the other hand, developmental disability services historically haven't had the expertise with mental health and addictions. And even if addiction services are available, traditional models weren't designed for individuals with developmental disabilities like this. In the few cases I'm thinking of, these youth often require treatment under the Mental Health Act. Eventually, they can stabilize in hospital with treatment for psychosis and, and a bit of containment and, and protection from drugs. But there remains a question of where do they go from hospital that won't result in prompt relapse into substance use and psychiatric difficulties and risk. Often the first step is having hospital support some time to come up with a plan that is outside the current system. And we've often been able to reconnect youth with CLBC and they'll at least initially provide some accompaniment for outings and activities which can make the hospital stay easier to tolerate. Um, we've been really fortunate to have been able to develop uh, an abstinence-based group home in partnership with Coast Mental Health, and we, we call it Renfrew House. And it's really our only housing site that is abstinence-based. It's a, it's a beautiful house outside of the downtown core, and it's fully staffed. And we, we've, again, really focused on supporting youth around having their important needs met. And, and one of those needs that is often overlooked in recovery programs is fun. Mm -hmm. You need to find a way to have excitement and exhilaration, especially if that's what you've been using methamphetamine for. As a healthy 
outlet for as a, as a healthy right? as a healthy mm-hmm. outlet. Um, so there's a range of rec groups that that we provide regularly, and that youth have a say in deciding what to do and how to stay busy with activities that are pleasurable. Because boredom can be a real trigger during recovery. And connection is so important in recovery. And and when you're using because of loneliness or trauma, you need careful support. And the staff at Renfrew House have created an environment that, again, is trauma-informed and reflects the same attachment principles we've built most of our work on. In many cases, family members are supported to reconnect and, and be involved when this can happen safely. And then youth need meaning and, and, and purpose, and, and, and we have an occupational therapist and a rehab team that supports them to get involved with life skills and school or volunteer work or employment when, when they're ready. And there needs to be ongoing mental health support. So the, these few youth uh, I'm thinking of eventually agreed to go to Renfrew House once they saw how nice it was. <laughs> And, and they made some connections there. And they agreed to go just, just to try to abstain, understanding that it, that it was an abstinence-based program. And, and there were some relapses, but several have gone on to stabilize, amazingly, you know, in their mental health and have had sustained abstinence and engaged in schooling and volunteering and, and work. I, I still see one fellow, you know, in the neighborhood, though I'm no longer involved, he always loved animals, and eventually at Renfrew House, he, he found regular work walking dogs, so I'll see him passing by sometimes. After he stabilized at Renfrew House, then he was able to access longer-term mental health housing, which hadn't been available to him before and has continued to, to do well. So we, we don't have all the answers, and not everything we've tried has worked out, but being willing to collaborate across programs and agencies has been a really important part of our approach as has been a willingness to consider new and innovative ways of providing care to youth. You touched on this a little bit, but taking us back to that intersection of mental health, substance use, and homelessness, how do you think the community, government, healthcare systems need to respond to address those unique needs? Well, we're, we're far from where we need to be with substance use services. Recovery, like any learning process, is characterized by trying new things and seeing what works, but also what doesn't. Most people that recover from substance use disorders will attend treatment on multiple occasions and, and have relapses along the way. We need to have more treatment programs that are re- readily available, and we, we really need more programs that are focused on youth. When youth are ready, they often need to be able to get away from triggering environments for a time in order to recover and stabilize and and learn new skills. And we need to have an approach that seeks to understand why people use and what they get from it and how this can be achieved in alternate ways that don't carry the same negative consequences as their substance use. And we need housing. We we can't address homelessness without it. It needs to be decent and it needs to be safe. Now, I know it's a huge challenge here in the Lower Mainland, and if anyone wants to partner on housing projects, please reach out to us. We've been advocating for a youth housing model where youth can be securely housed, but also given the opportunity to try different types of housing without risking homelessness again, because this is a natural part of this, this stage of life. In most cases, we've learned housing isn't itself enough. We need to value the independence and autonomy of youth, but we also need to have supports and care readily available when, when they need it. It's about finding that, that balance. We, we actually need more housing models like the one Covenant House has been able to provide for many youth. 
I see a young lady who came as a refugee to Canada all alone. And she was able to find shelter in the crisis program initially. Then she was able to move into the rites of passage program where she was able to have her own suite, but still some in-house staff and ongoing supports. There she stabilized further and was receiving treatment for, for, for trauma and bipolar disorder. Then she was able to move again to a subsidized independent apartment with outreach support. And by this time she was working regularly. Now she lives fully independently in market housing and runs her own business. So it's, it's amazing, you know. That idea of, of different housing models. So as you've just pointed out at Covenant House, the crisis program and then rites of passage. And then we have partners in the community, Hollyburn, who provide that, that next step after leaving Covenant House where they're still connected. And so uh, it's, um, yeah, it's important to have those different options. A blue sky question for you. If you had unlimited resources to create the perfect scenario, what would the components of an ideal system of mental health care look like? Well, I guess that's the challenge is that resources are limited uh, and we need all these things for youth and they are resource intensive, but youth can do so well with support and early treatment. And ultimately that makes a lot of sense fiscally when you consider the long-term consequences that can arise when they aren't getting help. We need that range of good housing options uh, with supports that we, we were just talking about, and we need substance use treatment that is timely and accessible. And then there's so much more we can be doing preventatively as well in our schools and in communities with more access to have early assessments and to provide education to reduce stigma around mental health treatments. But, I mean, I feel the model we have at Foundry has incredible promise, but the demand is is really high on our services like primary care, and, and we continue to need more resources. So in the current mental health care system, from your perspective, what is working well? And, and in thinking about that, are there any new or evolving practices on the horizon that you see as promising? I mean, I think we've talked a lot about today treatments that that can work really well and and we've certainly seen again recovery stories over the years in our work at at foundry and we're continuing to evolve we're, we're continuing to try to optimize the limited resources that we have and for example we're in the process of developing a, a, a trauma pathway and another pathway for anxiety and mood disorders to most efficiently direct youth to the most appropriate treatment and we're, and we're listening, trying to respond to other difficulties that have been identified by youth in the community, including access to specific assessments for things like ADHD and, and autism. And we continue to look for partnerships in the community because we all need to be involved in making youth a, a priority. They are our future. But when you ask what's working well, I haven't said nearly enough yet about how critical having a great team has been through this journey. Um, I've just been so fortunate to have been able to work with so many caring and, and, and brilliant colleagues from every discipline over the years. And there's been times like through this opioid crisis that we really had to support each other. But time and, and time again, I've been impressed with their energy and, and passion and, and new ideas to keep trying to improve care to our youth. You've spoken a few times about the importance of partnership, and, and you, you use the term, it, it takes a village. 
And we are so excited that later this fall, the Foundry Vancouver Granville will be opening a satellite clinic right here at Covenant House Vancouver. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about this partnership and what the clinic will offer. Well, it's really exciting, uh, and and we're excited. It it obviously captures the the importance of the ongoing partnership between Foundry and Covenant House, and and how we work with many of the same youth. Being on site is going to allow our primary care services to be that much closer and available when youth are accessing Covenant House. But it will also be another site where any youth can access our services and also hopefully learn more about Covenant House services while they are there. We'll also continue to see any youth at our existing clinic site. And Covenant House has has been gracious offering some additional space where we will be running other psychosocial programs and groups. And I help out with the basketball group and am particularly excited about the the gymnasium. We are so excited about that too. (laughs) The new space, among other spaces in our new building, that gymnasium is just going to provide new opportunities for connection with young people. So it's great. You're going to be in there shooting hoops. I'm going to do my best. (laughs) On that note, I think that's a good time to end with that, that visual of you playing basketball and, (laughs) and the hopefulness of, of the future that we have together working together. So thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been my pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode of Under One Roof. And again, I'd like to thank Dr. Dan Lin for joining me today. If you would like to learn more about the work that we do here at Covenant House Vancouver, or if you have a concern for a young person in your life, please visit Covenant House's website at www.covenanthousebc.org. If you have any feedback on today's episode or suggestions for future topics, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Hall. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Under One Roof, a Covenant House Vancouver production. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, please email us at publicaffairs at covenanthousebc.org. For more information on Covenant House Vancouver or to make a donation, please visit our website at www.covenanthousebc.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.